Well, please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Again, that's John 19. Uh, we're in the midst of a two-part message from John 19, 1 to 16 that I've entitled The Irrationality of Unbelief. As believers in Jesus Christ, we, I would expect, we long to share our faith with others. We've experienced, of course, the, the rich blessing that comes with knowing Christ. We know the peace that comes with having a clear conscience before God because Christ has cleansed us from our sin. We know the wonder that comes upon realizing that Christ would die for, for me, for you, that He would suffer God's wrath for us when, when all we've ever done is reject Him. We know the joy that comes in a life that's freed from the bondage of the sin, from, from, from the blessing that comes with living a righteous life before God. We know the hope that comes with knowing that the best is yet to come. That no matter what occurs in this life, our salvation is secure and eternal life with God awaits us in heaven. We experience all these things. And because we've experienced all these rich blessings, we want to share this truth with others. We want the ones that we love to come to know Christ so they can, they can share our joy. They can share our hope, our wonder. And so that they would also give God the glory that we know He deserves. However, as we all know, not everyone is eager to receive this good news. People often reject the gospel that we present, and as we probe for the reasons why, ask them, you know, why is it that you don't believe this, we often kind of hear something to the effect of, I just don't think any of it's true. You know, someone will say back, you know, as, as great as what you're saying might sound like, I think it's all fiction. Everyone knows that the Bible is nothing more than a book written, to, written by mere men thousands of years ago to explain things they can't explain. They didn't have science then, but we do now. We don't need stories to explain the world around us. We have our reason. We have our intellect. So, I'm just frankly, I'm not interested in what you have to say. We can often face these kinds of answers, and in these situations, it's not uncommon to make an attempt to reason with the individual because... Again, we so desperately want them to believe the truth. So we present you know, truth after truth for maybe why they can believe in the reliability of the Scriptures or, or how they can know that the earth is the result of God's hand in creation to try to remove these intellectual barriers. And yet, every step of the way, the person continues to reject every argument you put forward. And they'll often even do it to the point where they just stop reasoning with you and they just say, look, I just don't think it's true, okay? I'm done. What are we supposed to do in those situations? You know, why, why won't people believe the evidence? These are, these are questions we're exi- we've been examining from John 19, 1 to 16. Let's begin our time by, by reading this passage together. Uh, Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. He's about to be crucified for our sins. And John says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself 
he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it be given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Last week we noted that the problems we often face when we're trying to share the gospel with others are not unfamiliar to the Apostle John. Throughout his gospel, John has been trying to achieve one overall purpose for his readers. John 20, 30-31 tells us that he wrote this gospel so that his readers may, quote, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the Gospel of John, he has provided eyewitness testimony to, to miracles and statements, all of which are aimed to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. However, as John gets to the end of this Gospel, he anticipates a couple of different objections in the minds of his readers. One of it, which is, why would the people who witness Christ's miracles and teachings want Him crucified? If it was obvious from these signs that Jesus was who He claimed to be, which is the Son of God, then why would anyone want to kill Him? Last week we saw that John answered these objections in this passage through the examples of the chief priests and Pilate. John explains that the rejection of Jesus wasn't in any sense of the word a logical conclusion. Jesus wasn't crucified because the chief priests didn't believe that He had really performed any of the miracles. And He wasn't crucified because He was misunderstood or because he had performed some sin that Pilate thought meant he was actually guilty of committing a crime. Rather, John explains Jesus was crucified precisely because the chief priests did believe and understand the miracles and their implications. And he was crucified in spite of the fact that Pilate really did believe that he was innocent. So then why was he crucified? Why wouldn't they just accept the evidence and believe? Again, John explains, and he demonstrates that Christ was crucified out of purely wicked motives. It was an unrighteous act performed in clear light of the fact that it was unrighteous. The first example John provided was that of the chief priests. And and John demonstrates that they ignored the evidence about Jesus because of jealous pride. The resurrection of Lazarus described in John 11 was such a powerful and public demonstration of the truth behind Jesus' claims that belief in Jesus started to actually explode in and around Jerusalem. And it was because of this belief that the religious leaders decided to to deliver Jesus over to death under the pretense that they were concerned His popularity might bring destruction upon the nation. So when they delivered Him over to Pilate, they did it under the charge He was trying to lead a rebellion against Rome. The problem was that Pilate didn't think that Jesus was guilty. In fact, three times Pilate declared Jesus not guilty. 
So they have to come up with a new charge, and that charge is blasphemy. So they switched the charges presented to Pilate, and instead of a capital offense under Roman law, they say that Jesus is actually guilty of a capital offense under Jewish law. Again, the only problem is that up to this point in the gospel, it was obvious to John's readers that Jesus hadn't done anything even close to approximating blasphemy, either leading up to or during the trial. So again, why did they want Jesus dead? They wanted Jesus dead because Lazarus still lived. And he was making Jesus wildly popular. They wanted Jesus dead for their own sake. These men weren't patriots. They weren't religious zealots. They were simply proud men who loved to have first place in everything. And with the crowds starting to follow Jesus, it meant it wouldn't be long before they would lose their place of privilege and respect if Jesus wasn't dead. The second example John provides is that of Pilate. And John demonstrates that Pilate ignored the evidence about Jesus because of an overwhelming love for the world. Once the chief priest told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate suddenly became actually very interested in the identity of Jesus. A man of political power living at the pinnacle of of Roman might, Pilate knew the importance of connections. Furthermore, as a Roman governor, he was probably a man given to superstitions. He likely would have believed in the Roman pantheon of gods and the stories of of the gods taking human form and having half-god, half-human children. And so after the blasphemy charge was raised, where they say Jesus is making himself out to be the Son of God, he re-enters his headquarters to ask Jesus what kind of connections he might have, who he might know, what power he might possess. He says, where are you from? Jesus, though, refused to speak to Pilate. I said this is probably because he wants Pilate to judge not his authority, but his innocence. The issue at hand is his innocence. And Pilate needed to heed the evidence and make the judgment on that. So he doesn't give Pilate an answer. Frustrated, Pilate explodes and reminds Jesus of his authority, only for Jesus to remind Pilate that God is in authority over him. Now, by this point in the exchange, Pilate gets it. He understands Jesus, so recognizing his innocence, he tries to make every effort to release him, but then the chief priests tell Pilate that they're going to tell on him. They're going to go and tell Caesar that he let an insurrectionist go if if he doesn't kill Jesus. And when that happens, Pilate changes his mind, and he decides to go ahead and execute Jesus anyway. Again, the reason being, if Caesar were to find out he let a potential insurrectionist go, he would lose everything, quite probably even his own life. So in spite of Jesus' obvious innocence, Pilate decides to pass judgment and allow him to be crucified. Again, Pilate didn't actually think that Jesus was guilty. He was just afraid of what he might lose if he acted on his innocence by letting him go. So out of a love for this world, he condemned Jesus to death. As we consider why people harden themselves to the obvious truths of the gospel, and as we reflect on what John shows us in this passage, I think we must come to the realization that the problem of unbelief, very often, is not a lack of evidence. The issue in the souls of unbelievers is not really the mind so much as it is the heart. The issue is is that the things they Love the things they desire, and the will connected with those desires are inhibiting their belief. People will say at times, I would believe in God if there was just enough evidence. If I, if I saw a miracle firsthand, then I could believe, or, or something of that sort. And the real truth of the matter is that that statement is completely and utterly bogus. 
The scriptures show that. The Bible is crystal clear on this issue. Let it, let it be clear to you as well. The Bible never claims that people refuse to believe God for lack of evidence. In fact, it is emphatic about pointing out that people consistently reject God in spite of overwhelming evidence. For example, consider the Exodus. Turn to Exodus 14. Look at this here. In terms of sheer magnitude... The miracles recorded in the book of Exodus are perhaps the most awe-inspiring, earth-shattering displays of God's power this side of the Noahic flood. All in all, God performed ten miraculous signs while the people were in Egypt. And these signs were all performed for the purpose of revealing to Israel that their God was the God Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He was not a some kind of of regional God confined to the land of Canaan, and He was not a God among many to be contended with. Yahweh of Israel was to be worshipped by Israel for the God that He is, the one and only true God. And so as God demands that Pharaoh let His people go, He also hardens Pharaoh's heart repeatedly throughout the early account of the Exodus for the purpose explicitly of demonstrating to Israel display after display of His supreme power. Before it's all said and done, there, there are ten plagues in all. In the first plague, he turns an isle into blood. In the second plague, he, he sends a frogs over the land, covering the land of Egypt. Then there's a plague of gnats. There's a plague of flies. There's a plague on the livestock, pestilence, that kills a large portion of the livestock in Egypt. This is followed by a plague of boils that afflicts the Egyptians so badly that Pharaoh's magicians can't even stand for, for, before Moses because of the boils. Then God sends destruction on all the land itself, and the livestock, unaffected by the previous plagues, are struck down by a plague of hail mixed with lightning and fire that rains down from the sky. In plague number eight, God sends uh, locusts to consume any remaining food in Egypt. In the ninth plague, God sends a heavy darkness on the land of Egypt, making a distinction between the sons of Israel and Goshen. The darkness of that plague is actually so thick that the people in Egypt couldn't even rise out of their beds to move about their rooms. Plague number 10, finally, the last plague, God distinguishes among the people of Israel and Egypt by killing all the firstborn of Egypt in a plague forever remembered and commemorated as the Passover. I mean, this is an awesome display of power, all these 10 plagues. And once again, the point behind all these plagues is to demonstrate to Israel there's no God like Yahweh. There's no provider, no protector, no warrior like Yahweh. He's the ruler of all the earth. And all of Israel's trust is to be instilled in Him and Him alone. And yet by the time Israel gets to the Red Sea, so we're talking just days after they witness the last of these plagues, and and they get to the Red Sea and they see Pharaoh's chariots in hot pursuit as they're hemmed in by the sea. How do they respond? Look at verses 10 to 12. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Like they look at this and they say, they say, that's it, we're going to die, we're done for, we're going to get slaughtered here by the Red Sea. Isn't that weird? Look at this, it says, They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die 
in the wilderness. Again, they think we're done for. We're going to get killed here by the Red Sea. Isn't that weird when you think about it? How can they say that just a few days after everything that they've seen in Egypt? Didn't they, th- didn't they just watch God turn the Nile into blood, right? I mean, do you think he can't do anything about the sea hemming them in? But that's what they think. They think they're dead. Of course, God then parts the sea and, and swallows Pharaoh's armies. And you would think that that would be enough to prove the point, but it's not. Look over to, turn over to Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, the people get out of the wilderness and they start running low on food. Well, now they're going to believe. Right now, they've, they've had even more evidence you know, after the running at the Red Sea and they're going to trust God to provide, right? Well, no, of course not. Look at Exodus 16, 1-3. It, it says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, they doubt. And again, God miraculously provides meat and bread for the people. Miracle after miracle is provided for the people. He causes Moses to bring water forth from a rock twice. He leads the Israelites in victory over the Amalekites. He leads the people with a pillar of fire and cloud by day, uh, and a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as a constant reminder of his presence. He surrounds Mount Sinai with smoke and thunder and lightning. But when Moses is up on the mountain for too long, right, and he's receiving instructions from from, from God for his people, what do the people do? Already they they, they disobey God by creating and worshiping a golden calf. God disciplines the people for that unbelief, and then He continues to provide signs for them. Finally, they arrive at the edge of the land of Canaan. Turn to Numbers 14. Look at Numbers 14. They arrive at Canaan. This is the land that God had been promising the nation for over 400 years. And God tells Israel to send spies in the land, to scout out the land, to see if it's a good land, and see how strong the people in the land are. You know the story, the the spies come back after a period of 40 days and they report that the land is indeed good. God had promised Israel an exceedingly great land. The people of Canaan, though, they're another story. They're strong. In fact, they're large. They're really large. And the cities they inhabit are fortified, strongly fortified. How should the people respond then when they consider that the God who had performed all these miracles coming out of Egypt had promised them this land. Well, how did they respond? Look here, Numbers 14, 1 to 4. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Understand, this is, this is all in, in one generation. They saw all these things, and yet they still refused to believe God and obey His commands. 
And it's not just the Exodus. You go back and you read the Scriptures with this in mind, and you'll see instance after instance of people refusing to believe God in the face of overwhelming evidence. The reality is the Bible never indicates that it's for lack of evidence that a person refuses to believe the Gospel. Maybe flip over here to Deuteronomy 30. What what the Scripture always indicates, against Deuteronomy 30, what the Scripture always indicates is that the heart is the issue. This is actually why Moses tells the next generation of Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, this generation of Israelites who witnessed their parents and grandparents drop dead in the wilderness over a period of 40 years as a consequence for their disobedience to God. It's why Moses tells that second generation in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, he says that although like God will bless them for their obedience and curse them for their disobedience, in verse 30, verse 1, he indicates that they are guaranteed to experience the curses of disobedience from God. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord has driven you, he says, you're going to fail. Like He's going to bless you if you obey. He's going to curse you if you disobey. And by the way, after the curse comes upon you, and you're in the land of exile because you've not obeyed the Lord, That's why after he says all of that, Moses then says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. After Israel has been cursed by God, while the people are scattered amongst the nations for their stiff-necked disobedience to God, he says that God will do something that will change the heart of the people. Again, the heart is the issue. Look here at verse 30, verse 5. He says, after this happens, he says, And the Lord God will bring you into the land of your fathers that you possess, you may possess it, and he will make you prosperous, more numerous than your fathers. Verse 6, it says, And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See, that's the problem. It's their heart. That's why they were sent off into exile. And that's what must be changed before they can return. Again, the heart is the issue. That's why Paul says in Romans 30, or not Romans 30, there's no Romans 30. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The issue isn't a lack of evidence. According to Romans three twelve. the issue is that far from seeking God, men actually run from the evidence that's been provided to them. People will reject the gospel for any number of reasons. You've experienced this kind of rejection firsthand. Again, people will reject the gospel for any number of reasons. They'll claim, perhaps, that they can't accept the authority of Scripture. You know, they'll say that Genesis and Exodus are just a, a bunch of a, a, a process, a, the, the result of a conglomeration of, of different traditions from different sources over a large number of years. And many different authors, they'll say, wrote it. They'll say that the New Testament books aren't apostolic. You know, that they were just made up by people who weren't even necessarily alive when Jesus walked on the earth. That it's all pure myth. Others will claim they can't accept the Bible statements on creation. They'll say that modern science proves. The earth is approximately four and a half billion years old. That there are remains uh, and fossil layers thousands of years deeper in the geological strata than the approximate age of the earth suggested by the Bible. You know, they'll say, come on, there, there are dinosaurs down there in the ground. You're going to tell me that Noah took dinosaurs on the ark with him? Some will claim that the whole concept of sin and, and God's judgment can't be true. 
Because there's no such thing as a moral right and wrong. They'll say religion was just a concept created by men to establish order in society and, and to control women. They'll say we've evolved past such primitive tendencies, that there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's only what you value to be true versus what I value to be true, and it's all relative. And the truth is that when you come across these arguments, they can be kind of intimidating at first. You may start thinking to yourself, you know, I don't really know what to say to these objections. I never studied geology, right? How how am I supposed to determine the, the scientific age of the earth? I'm not a historian. I, I can't explain the development of religion in societies around the world. I'm not a textual scholar. I can't explain how the ancient Hebrew texts point to a single author of Genesis. And I, or I can't explain how we can confidently date the New Testament books into the mid-first century. Again, these can be intimidating, but you have to remember in those moments, a person never really rejects the truth for a lack of evidence. For example, take the idea of, of creation versus evolution, which is, which is a hot topic today. People like to claim that they can't believe the Bible is correct on creation when there's so little evidence for it and so much evidence for evolution. Now, the Scripture is clear that it's obvious from the creation that God exists. Psalm 19 said that, says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and, and it's absolutely true. Romans 1, 19 and 20 explains that God has put His invisible attributes on display through the visible creation so that His divine nature could be, quote, clearly perceived. And this is true. It's absolutely obvious from the creation that God exists. You know, for a number of years before I came to faith in Christ, I thought I was a believer. But in reality, I never truly repented of my sins. I never fully even understood the concept. And even when I finally did, I didn't want to do it. Well, I was raised uh, going to public school, and I've been taught the science that you might expect to find in, in public high schools. I claimed faith in Christ, but I had also accepted the worldviews taught to me by that system. And in short, I believed in evolution. I believe that the term day in Genesis could refer to thousands or even millions of years. Now, by college, my, my lack of belief in the Scripture had also deteriorated. I took an Old Testament class at Missouri State that started to expose me to the various criticisms surrounding the integrity of the biblical text. I also took a, an astronomy class of only affirm my belief that the biblical account of creation couldn't be true. And all of this combined to make me begin to doubt the existence of God for the very first time in my life. In fact, I started to live a life of increasingly sinful behavior stemming to a large degree from my lack of faith in God. Well, interestingly enough, it was after I transferred to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is, I think, probably about as secular of a university environment as you're ever going to find, it was, it was there, actually, that everything began to be turned around. And it didn't actually start through the Scripture, though that eventually did come. The, the really important part did come, and they came through the Scripture later on. And it didn't start through conversations with, with other believers, necessarily, though that would come eventually, too, as well. No, believe it or not, the turnaround started with a class that was specifically designed to proliferate an anti-biblical worldview by making the case for the abundance of life found in the universe. In fact, the class was actually called Life in the Universe. Well, it was during the course of that class, as the, and I'm not going to get into all the details here, but it was during the course of that class as the conditions required for life and the probability of those conditions existing in the universe as we know it, as it was explained to me from some, by some of the brightest faculty in the world, 
It was actually in that class that I, as an unbeliever, started to come to a pretty startling conclusion. And that conclusion is, I think we're all alone. More than that, I started to think, really, it's pretty amazing. You know, from what they're telling me, it's pretty amazing that we're even here at all. The odds are against our existence. As I continued to wrestle over these conclusions, it was only then that I began to reconsider what the Scripture had to say about my existence, and I began to realize that the answers had been in front of me the entire time. The the point to be made here is that the Bible says, what I'm trying to get at here is that the Bible says that the creation declares the existence of God. And I can tell you from my personal experience as a young man seeking answers about the nature of my existence in the creation, it certainly did so for me. The largeness of the universe didn't declare the insignificance of man, as so many say it declares today. Rather, it pointed to the amazing fact that somehow we're here, and we are significant. To look into the heavens and to see all those stars, and to realize that in all likelihood there was life around none of them, made me begin to wonder how I came to be. It should make you realize how special it is that we're here. That this is the exact opposite of, of how modern science works. Vast amounts of money are being spent on the search for life in the universe. And keep in mind, there's nothing wrong with that scientifically. An unbelieving scientist has every right to ask the question, are we alone, and then go in search of the answer to that question. But thus far, scientific discovery has only pointed to a lack of evidence for life elsewhere. This is just one example, but it points to that. In truth, there's, there's largely a lack of evidence even for the conditions of life. Most places where scientists think that the conditions for life could exist are built on a hypothesis about what they think might be there. There's no real proof that it's there. And yet, in spite of the absolute lack of evidence, there's this wholehearted belief that it's out there, that life is out there. My, my favorite illustration of this hard-heartedness behind this, this, this really, which is really this faith And I think I've shared this illustration before, but I'm going to share it again because I think it illustrates the point well. But my favorite illustration of this sort of hard-heartedness comes from the life of Francis Crick. Again, I've shared this before, but if you're not familiar with Francis Crick, Francis Crick, in in 1953, he was responsible for the co-discovery of the structure of DNA along with with James Watson. In 1962, he received the Nobel Prize for Physiology uh, and Medicine. Uh, He staunchly rejected Christianity. He, he called it foolishness. In fact, once he even joked that Christianity may be okay between consenting adults in private but should not be taught, uh, taught to young children. Uh, he was just steadfast rejection of Christianity. However, what's interesting about Crick is that very early on as he studied the complexity of DNA, he came to the conclusion that it was impossible for life to simply to spring up here on the earth is what he previously thought. And so, As he began to wrestle with that truth, he began to theorize that, okay, it couldn't happen here naturally. So I think the way it happened is through an idea he called directed panspermia, which is the belief that space aliens brought life here. Like That was was the conclusion he came to. It can't happen here on its own, so I guess space aliens had to bring it here. And this just goes to show you, when it gets down to the science and the question raised, does God exist, the answer commonly given is not about the evidence. It's about the will. People do not believe because they do not want to believe. And that's just one example, again, from the realm of science. We can answer similar objections about the reliability of Scripture or about the existence of good and evil. The same issue could be presented. The the problem with all of these is not the evidence. So again, if a person doesn't reject the gospel for a lack of evidence, if all these arguments are really bogus in the end, 
then why do people reject the truth? And again, the issue is the heart. Going back to John 19 for a minute, John shows us, again, these two examples where men rejected the truth, obvious truth of Jesus for heart reasons. In other words, it was for reasons related to their will or desires. Again, for the chief priests, the problem wasn't evidence, it was their pride. Pride can make a person reject the clear teaching of the Scripture. The message of the Gospel and everything that it entails is considered incredibly foolish by the world's standards. To claim belief in this ancient book and the supernatural realities it describes is is easily considered antiquated, It's considered old-fashioned, a relic of an intellectually darkened past because it contradicts the philosophies and systems produced by the highly esteemed in our society. And this means that in order for someone to become a Christian, they have to be willing to accept the mockery and the scorn that comes with accepting a truth that the vast majority of people, people simply cannot see, cannot comprehend, will not see or comprehend, and regard it as foolish. They have to be willing to regard the esteem they receive from others as loss, in view of the surpassing worth found in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. The issue for many, though, is that they can't accept that. Again, the problem isn't that they can't believe the evidence, it's that they don't want to accept what the evidence implies, which is a life of humiliation before this world system and the vast bulk of humanity that distorts the evidence. For many, this is just too high of a price to pay, so they adjust the evidence before them to fit what they want to see, and ignore the truth. For Pilate, the problem wasn't evidence. Again, it was a love for the world. So the chief priest struggled with pride. Pilate struggled with a love for the world. A love for the world can also make a person reject the clear teaching of Scripture. The Gospel proclaims a radical sinfulness, essentially that, that, that before we knew Jesus Christ, we could only know sin. And this means that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that we're sinners. We're all sinners. And that means a life of repentance from these sins stretches out ahead of us. A life of crucifying one's own sinful desires every single day stretches out ahead of us. A life of putting to death those things that our sinful flesh loves. And this also is too much for many. And so like Pontius Pilate or like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19... They hear the gospel and they turn away to return to the things that they love more than God. The issue isn't that they can't believe the evidence. It's that they don't want to accept what the evidence implies, which is a life of repentance from the sins they love. It's simply too steep a price to pay to follow Christ. So they distort or ignore the evidence in front of them. Again, the issue is the heart. People may claim there's all these reasons why they can't believe the gospel, but it's never really true. In fact, in rare moments of honesty, some people will even admit it. At Grace Community School, I had students all the time who could rehearse all the facts of the gospel, claim they were true, and yet they would admit they weren't believers. I, I would sit down and be some, usually some type of discipline situation. I'm trying to counsel them through it um, as they're kind of getting, getting a correction from the school. And I would ask them, I'd say, you know, do you believe that God exists? Yeah, I believe that God exists. Okay, well, do you believe that the Scripture tells us about God. Yes, I believe it is. So you think it's the Word of God? Yeah. Do you believe it's inspired? Yeah. Do you think it's inerrant? Yeah. Okay. Well, do you believe what it says about Jesus, that He's the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe that He came to, to live a, a perfect life on this earth and to die for our sins? Yes, I do. 
okay, uh, do you believe that the, that the only way that a person can come to know God is through faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. And if you don't believe Christ, then you're going to go to hell. Yes. Are you a Christian? No. I would ask them, I'd say, why not? And they'd be honest, Many, a few, several of them, they would just say, I love my sin too much. They would just own it. <laughs> See, that's the problem. It's the heart. And if that's the problem, if the issue is really a matter of the heart, what should we do as, our share, as we share our faith? How are we to approach those who exhibit this kind of hardened unbelief? How are we to interact with those who have heard biblical truth with clarity and continue to reject it in spite of the clear testimony to its truth? Let's look at a few applications. These don't necessarily come from the passage. This is, uh, I'll tell you that up front. This is just kind of wisdom. This is scripture from a few different places applied. But I would say this is how um, we're to go about it. The first application I would put before you is to minister. To minister. If today's passage teaches, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but if this passage teaches us anything, it's that unbelief is driven primarily by a person's desires. They resist the gospel because they have an idol that the gospel is going to demand that they abandon. So I think what this means is that you have to start by figuring out who you're talking to, what it is they want, and then address the false thoughts about that idol which are hardening their heart to the truth. In other words, you need to analyze why a person is rejecting the truth and then respond to that, not necessarily to the reasons they claim they don't believe. Now, at this point, I should, I should clarify that I'm not saying that everyone who accepts a worldview contrary to a biblical worldview is, con- is in a consciously hardened state to every truth presented in the Scripture. So not everyone who rejects the Scripture is fully aware of the fact that they're rejecting the truth. Keep in mind, the Scripture indicates Satan is a master deceiver, and he's described in the New Testament as the ruler of this world. And also keep in mind that the Bible refers to man's rejection of God both as a choice and as a consequence of a sin-darkened mind. So it's certainly possible that a person can be deceived into a sincere belief that the gospel isn't true. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, meaning people can't see it, they can't perceive it, can't understand it, he says, even if it's veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this kind of unbelief is certainly possible. In fact, I would argue that this is the case with most unbelievers. They have, they have suppressed the truth for so long that they are now genuinely convinced that the gospel is false. In fact, I, again, I would say this is most people. They're not necessarily ignoring the evidence. It's just that they are now deceived into thinking the evidence isn't there. Again, that was me. I, I started out believing in God but eventually began to sincerely question his existence. I actually wanted to believe, very badly in fact, I wanted to believe, but I was having trouble believing because of what I had been taught. For someone like that, for someone who has been deceived into thinking the scriptures have been refuted or something like that, for them it can actually be quite helpful to tear down the arguments that, is, that attack scriptural revelation. Uh, keep in mind, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many were indeed believing in Him. They saw the sign, and that was enough for them to believe. It may very well be that when you present the evidence to this kind of an individual, you won't find a hardened rejection to the truth, but perhaps a curiosity to know more. This isn't to say that their heart is still isn't 
uh, still inclined against God. This is just to say that they may not be in a state of hardened rejection on every single issue. Be open to the fact that they may be open, and answering the questions may help. However, that being said, there are those instances where a person has been presented clear evidence, and they still reject it. And that's really more of what we're talking about here. What do you do in those instances? Well, again, it's important to realize that another of Satan's strategies is to distract a person from the truth. This can often be what's really going on when a person rejects the truth. Evolutionary arguments, etc., they're just decoys meant to get you away from the real issue, which is the heart. Just like Pilate's real problem was not a lack of evidence, but a love for the world, so also their problem may not be a lack of evidence, but a love for the world. In other words, they may claim that the reason they can't believe is because they can't trust the Scripture, but be prepared for the fact that the reason they say they can't trust the Scriptures is because they're involved in a sin that's denounced in the Scripture. For instance, a husband pursuing an unbiblical divorce is more likely to attempt to justify his actions by claiming the Scriptures can't be trusted. The college student living with his girlfriend is more likely to try to explain away the Scriptures by saying that right and wrong are simply a matter of cultural differences evolved over several thousand years because he doesn't want to accept that what he's doing is sin. And keep in mind that in these instances, the person's mind can be so darkened in their sin that they actually believe what they're saying. They're completely blind to how they're covering up the truth. So as you share the Gospel, you have to minister to the person's heart. You have to be aware of how these collateral issues may be coming into play and begin to draw attention to those issues with the individual. In other words, when the truth has been clearly presented, stop arguing about whether God is really there or whether Jesus really rose from the dead and try to discover the sins that they're protecting. And then show them the problem with these sins. For example, you may say to the hardened atheist, you know, I I keep hearing all these objections that you present against biblical creation, but... I feel like as often as I answer your objections, you keep coming up with more. From my perspective, it looks like maybe you don't want to believe. So can I just ask you, in all sincerity, if you were to know, let's just just go through a scenario here. If you were to know with absolute certainty that the gospel is true, then tell me, would you believe in Christ and repent of your sins? Even if they're not immediately straightforward with you in their answer, you may be asking them a question that they haven't asked themselves. And you may be starting to expose for them in ways they hadn't realized before what are the motives behind their rejection. You may be helping them see that their head really isn't the issue. It's their pride, or it's their love for the world, or whatever it may be. Or you may say to the person pursuing the divorce in as much boldness, gentleness, and love that you can possibly muster. Again, go back to the, the, the husband who's kind of raising all these objections about the Scripture, really probably because he wants to just you know, pursue his sin. You might say to them, you know, I keep hearing these objections about the reliability of Scripture, even when I keep showing you that they can be answered. Do you think it's possible the reason you're presenting them is because you know that if they're true, then you're going to have to forgive your wife and pursue reconciliation with her? Believe it or not, you might be shining a spotlight on the real issue in a way you hadn't, they hadn't seen before. They may leave that conversation asking themselves if that really is the case, perhaps even realizing that that is indeed the case. Again, you may be helping them come to repentance. So identify the heart issues, and then as the proper heart issues are identified, minister to these heart issues with truth. In other words, don't only, don't only expose 
the illogical, unreasonable thought behind the reasons they claim they don't believe also expose the unreasonableness of the sin they're protecting. Remove the deception that they're in. Point out the error and danger presented in their worldview. If the atheist defending evolution is doing so because he can't imagine himself accepting a religion so intolerant of behaviors commonly accepted in today's society, then explain to him how evolution is actually contradictory to the concept of individual rights. How it reduces people to nothing more than a bag of chemicals that came from nothing and will reduce to nothing and are really only here by chance. Truth from God is the only consistent truth. All lies begin to break down in their inconsistency. So force them to see the inconsistency of their beliefs, their worldview, and let it collapse on itself. Expose the danger of their wicked heart. Show them how it will lead to their destruction. Show them how God's commands for them in this area of their life that they're protecting are, are really good for them. That He instructs them as a loving Heavenly Father. Again, if it's pride they're wrestling with, you know, explain the emptiness of human praise to the hardened atheist. Read John 2, 15-17 to him and explain to him that the world system that he enjoys approval from, that he's seeking praise from, is one day going to be destroyed. Counsel the man about the divorce's wife with practical wisdom about the trouble that will come from this, the people he'll harm, the relationships he'll damage, the emptiness of the life that he thinks he's going to live on the other side of that. Disarm them. Show them the foolishness of their rebellion and help them lay their weapons down. By the way, if you want to see a really excellent example of what this looks like from our Lord, I'd encourage you to go home and read Matthew 12, 22-45. In this example, the Pharisees said Jesus cast out demons, you know well by this point, but they cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. It's a hard rejection of the clear evidence that Jesus has been presenting. In His response to them, Jesus refuses to give further evidence of who he is, even when he's asked to supply it. Instead, he points out the, the complete insanity of what they're saying. He starts to go, this is, you realize how crazy what you're saying is? And he demonstrates that the issue is the stubbornness of their hearts to the truth. This is what you have to do. You have to make sure that you give the person that you're talking to what they need, not necessarily what they ask for. So the first implication, or application rather, is minister. Because unbelief is related to the heart, try to discern why a person doesn't want to believe and then minister to the heart. Application number two, live. Live. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basketball and stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I'll tell you, the strongest evidence to the truth of Scripture is to live it out. So live it out. When people see you live differently, when they see the church live differently, when they see you live contrary to what makes sense according to their worldview, and when they see you rejoicing in the very things that they try to avoid, that is evidence of the supernatural. Because that is evidence of the Holy Spirit residing in you. Beyond this, when they see you living this way, and when they see the beauty of what you're living out, when they see the joy by which you do it, that is a demonstration of the fact that God is good. And that He is truly pleasing to know. And that what you say is true, that the gospel is good news. Because they can see it working firsthand. 
That combined with your verbal proclamation of the gospel can transform a person. Going back to our example here, the man seeking a divorce from his wife who denies the reliability of Scripture. When you discuss the reliability of Scripture with him and point out the true reasons behind why he's denying it and discuss why God wants him to preserve his marriage with his wife, don't think that after that conversation he won't be watching you. And even if he completely rejects everything you have to say, don't think he won't be paying attention to your marriage. It's as he sees that husbands, you love your wife, or ladies, that you love and respect your husbands, and that you enjoy being married. It is that testimony that may cause his heart to soften on his commitment to divorce his wife. It may cause him to realize that maybe you really do know the truth because the truth is working itself out in your life. And as his heart begins to be inclined to the gospel through your testimony, it's then that he may be willing to lay down his arms because the gospel has proven itself true and eventually, Lord willing, it may in his own life as well. And by the way, if you wonder why your sanctification matters, right? You don't know if you ever wonder about this. Why does your sanctification matter when you're not saved by your works? And when you won't achieve perfection in your sanctification this side of heaven? This is at least one reason why. It's not because it's necessary for your salvation, your sanctification, but it may be instrumental in the salvation of others. To put it simply, you're going to have a real hard time convincing others that Jesus is what they need more than anything else in this life if you're not living this way. You're going to have a hard time convincing others that Jesus has conquered sin if they don't see that principle working itself out in your life as you are conformed into His image. They're going to have a hard time seeing the beauty of God when His image in you is so marred and deformed with sin because of your own lack of repentance. It's going to have, they're going to have a hard time believing that. So you've got to work on your sanctification. You've got to repent of your idolatry. The Great Commission depends on it. And, and by the way, while we're on topic, I'll just point out that this is also why we have to persevere in our fellowship with one another. This is why we have to learn to speak the truth to one another in love. Don't miss this point. The, the, the building up of the church is great commission work. Satan knows he can't have us, but he still works to have us stumble and fall into sin. Why? Again, this has to be at least one of the reasons. He wants to make Christ's church powerless in His testimony. He wants us to be so distracted by this world that we ignore the commission that Christ has given to us. And so, so a major part of the Great Commission actually happens here at the church where we receive instruction about how to fight sin, where we are patched up and then we're sent, you know, when we're wounded by sin, we're patched up and sent back out onto the lines to proclaim Christ. Get back into the fight. The stuff we do here matters because the gospel advances the testimony of our lives. Once again, this is our second application, live. Demonstrate the truth of your life. The third application is proclaim. Proclaim. On one hand, we have to understand that the Scripture is truth. And in this sense, you don't have to prove Scripture because the Scripture is truth. You don't need to provide evidences of biblical truth to the unbeliever because the Scripture itself is the most powerful proof to the truth of the Scripture. If the unbeliever just takes the time to consider what's being said in Scripture, they'll see that it's true. But once again, the, ev- the issue isn't evidence as much as it is the heart. The problem of unbelief will always come back 
to the heart. Even with a person who has never heard biblical truth and is open to hearing it, realize that even then, after they've heard the truth, and even after they're willing to affirm that truth with their mind, the issue is still their heart. The issue is that they have to stop loving their sin and start loving God. There's really nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do about that. You are no more able to make them love God than you can make a blind person see or bring the dead back to life. Now, of course, I think you probably have all heard the saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So it is with the unbeliever in biblical truth. Only God can change the heart. And He changes it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So even if you manage to present all the evidence in the world, addressing every logical proof and every sin issue in the person's life, even if they're overwhelmed by the truth of what you're saying, even to the point that they're agreeing with you, that doesn't mean that they'll love the truth enough to repent of their sins. Even once you've removed every possible objection and explained the goodness of God with such clarity that they may even agree with you, there's a point at which they may still say, like my students often said to me, I just love my sin too much. Romans 8, 7-8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it cannot, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is that, that rational to see all the evidence and turn away? No, but again, sin is never rational. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms the sin calloused heart, and He transforms it through His written Word. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Scripture is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict people. So all you really have to do is proclaim Scripture, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. The Spirit will use the truth in the Bible, in particular the gospel of Jesus Christ, to convict and transform the person to saving faith in Christ. So understand, you are merely sowers. And all you have to do is cast seed. You don't cause the growth, right? Second, or 1 Corinthians indicates God causes the growth. You cast the seed and God will convict all those whom He will to faith in Jesus Christ. And once again, I point to my own testimony as evidence of the fact that this does actually work, by the way. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was actually while I was wrestling with what I was learning about in that Life in the Universe class that I picked up a Bible that was being handed out by a group of Gideons on campus. And, and they gave me that Bible and I started to read the Bible again. And as I read, I believed it was true. And eventually I came to faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't present evidence with me. They didn't reason with me. They didn't even really actually talk with me. They just handed me a Bible. They shared Scripture with me. And God used that Bible in conjunction, in conjunction with the conviction that He was already placing on my heart before they handed it to me, independent of any of the efforts of any believers to bring me to faith in Christ. So again, a- application number three, proclaim, share the Word of God. Number four, pray. Pray. If a person can only come to faith through the power of God, then this brings about a very practical application for us as we share the gospel with those who ignore the evidence. And that's prayer. Sometimes we get these feelings of guilt when someone doesn't believe. I don't know if you do. I do. Or I start to say to myself, I need, I, you know, I need to do more. I need to know more. If I only had the right answers, if I'd only been able to answer that question, they probably would have believed. <laughs> no. It's not how it works. Listen, Christian, it's not your fault if they don't believe. 
You're not to blame for their unbelief, especially if the gospel has been clear. Let me say it one more time. No one can believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, it's not your fault that they don't believe. Every unbeliever's heart is bent towards sin. And that's why they don't believe. It doesn't matter what you say to them. The Spirit must free the heart before they'll believe so that the mind can fall in line with the truth. This means that if you want the stony hearts that you evangelize to be transformed, then you have to pray. Please don't lose sight of this fact, not only in your life, but in the life of this church. If we want to reach this community for Christ, then we have to pray. The truth of the matter is that there's really very little we can do in and of ourselves to impact Carthage for the name of Christ. If you look around, there's really only a few of us showing up here, right? We lack the manpower to reach everyone here with the gospel. Even in those opportunities, we have to share Christ with others. We often lack the opportunity for serious discussion. You know, we're standing next to them in the checkout line, or we're sitting down next to them in the waiting room at the dentist's office, and we just don't have time to answer all their objections. So perhaps we invite them to church with the hopes they'll have a chance to talk. We'll have a chance to talk with them more about Christ there. But even if they come, it doesn't mean that they'll like what they find here. The only hope we have, the only hope we have, is if God is already working within those individuals so that when we proclaim the gospel to them, the ground that He has prepared for the gospel will receive it and bear fruit. In truth, we're not only sowers, we're also harvesters. The seed is cast, and then we wait for God to cause the growth, And then we come at the very end of the process to harvest His work. But where will we find those who are ready to receive the gospel call? We can't find them. We can't know who's ready. Again, we just cast seed and cast seed and cast seed and pray for God to cause the growth and then pray for for harvest time. That's how it works. We have to pray. So let's actually close our message here as we think about that. Let's close our message here today by doing that very thing. Let's close our time together by asking God to help us be effective in this gospel work. Understanding that He causes the growth. That as much as we want to share with people, again, when we see their hard hearts, to recognize it doesn't matter what I say to them if He doesn't do it. So let's close by praying that He would cause the growth as we sow the seed and that there would be a harvest. Let's pray.